afternoon. I'm Lou Eisen, boxing historian, and this is Ring Talk. Today, today, two days ago, on Sunday, October the 30th, was the 48th anniversary of one of the most historic fights in the entire 300-year history of modern boxing. It's when Muhammad Ali made the gods weep, when he climbed the mountain of impossibility and made it probable and made it happen by defeating the reigning and undefeated monstrous, not monstrous, monster-like heavyweight champion of the world, a man who thought, who everyone thought would never be beaten, George Foreman, by knocking him out in eight rounds since a year to reclaim the title. It had been seven years since the criminal uh, boxing commissions in the United States and the sanctioning bodies, which were full of criminals and mobsters, stole his title for refusing to enter the Vietnam draft. And because of that, and Ali didn't go to Canada, he didn't burn his draft card, he fought it legally in the United States, and he was eventually um, vindicated when the Supreme Court ruled in his favor by a 9-0 score, and an 8-0 score, I believe, and, and Ali then, uh, they couldn't give him his title back, so he had to come back and fight, and he had his two fights, he had had to fight with the uh, first fight back. Jerry Corey stopped him in three, knocked out Oscar, Oscar Bonavita in 15. Then he took on Joe Frazier. Now, if he fought Frazier in the 60s, he would have beaten Frazier, I think, rather easily. But Frazier probably would not have been ready then. He had to fight Frazier in the third fight back. Angelo Dundee didn't want it. He wanted Muhammad to have at least two, most likely three more fights before he fought Frazier. But Ali was millions of dollars in debt to his lawyers, and he needed the money. So two and a half million had to take the fight, made it close, outlanded Frazier, but lost the fight. And and uh, he went on to try to get the title back and kept fighting and fighting and fighting, lost the fight to Norton, who broke his jaw in the second round, had a rematch, beat Norton six months later. And uh, in that time, Joe Frazier was the world heavyweight champ, and he took on the 1968 Olympic champion, George Foreman, who is now the world heavyweight champ or who was going to be, excuse me, uh, for the title. And Foreman was looked at as a big underdog, three, four to one underdog. No one gave him a chance to beat Joe Frazier. He was too rough around the edges. He he threw his punches around, but no one, you know, they weren't, it, it was in, they were in denial. Frazier hadn't really trained for the fight. He took him too lightly by his own omission. Foreman was 6'4", 225, and he could, and let me put it this way. You know, you see guys, I said this the other week, you know, you see guys sometimes that are so strong, you look at your friend while watching him fight and say, that guy could stop a charging rhino, or that guy could stop a Buick or a Mack truck with a punch. That was Foreman. Foreman hit guys, they went three feet in the air and came down. And as Richard Pryor used to say, Foreman didn't just punch you out, he punched you up. And then you'd land. And it's like Foreman, Pryor's great joke was, you know, George Foreman come out and say, tell me which ones he ever was the referee, because I'm going to kill the other mofo. So Frazier has his reign at heavyweight champ, great champion, great person, and he fights Foreman, and Foreman takes him out in two rounds, drops him six times. Howard Cosell is there at ringside, and Angelo Dundee is the color commentator, my surrogate father, and you can hear Angelo yelling, stop the fight, he's going to kill him, he's going to kill him. And Ali thought this would just be a routine defense for Frazier. And now Frazier, Frazier loses. Now he's got to climb this big, gigantic mountain. Sonny Liston, number two. Younger, stronger than Liston and, and, uh, and a better boxer. So 
Ali had his work cut out for him. A foreman was born uh, January 10th, I believe, 10th, in, in um, Houston, 1949. Grew up in the Fifth Ward, and this was a, a tough, tough... Fifth Ward was one of the toughest areas in the United States, if not the world. You see various burials in Southern America, which are supposed to be tough and crime rate, and this is what it was like. Foreman was unusually tall for his age and a tough guy, so he didn't back down from anyone. As he said, when he was young, he was a thug. He engaged in petty thievery. And uh, I think he had a very low self-esteem. And then Foreman, of course, uh, one day he's going to school and, you know, he sees people leave his house. So he leaves, climbs in through the window on the side of the house. I mentioned this several weeks ago. And Foreman climbs in through the window, goes back to bed. His sister catches him and says, oh, don't. And he's sort of shocked. Oh, I got caught. So she said, oh, don't worry, George, you're a loser. I'm a loser. None of us will amount to anything anyway. It doesn't matter if you go to school. Not upset him because he thought deep down, I'm not a loser. I'm a person of worth. And he was watching TV. He couldn't read or write. And he saw an advertisement for the Job Corps. And he went and joined the Job Corps. And he said, I'm the product of a passionate America. And he moved to Oregon where he met Doc Brodus. He was taking carpentry. He learned to read and write. It's hard to explain this to people. I'm 61. So when I was five, my mother died and I moved around to different places. My father had a nervous breakdown. So my sister and I had to move to different schools. And so being five and then turning six and seven, I, you know, I hadn't learned to read or write yet. So people were, I didn't know my own name when someone mentioned in class, it felt like living in a dark world. All I wanted to do, which I did during the day was hide. So, and, and don't go to school. And that's what Foreman did. But when he got there, people took the time to teach him how to read. And he said, and I experienced the same thing, learning how to read is like going from a dark room into a bright room with a, a thousand lights. And once he learned to read, he couldn't stop. He, he kept, and he still to this day, he can't read. There's not enough books in the world for George Foreman to read. He's constantly devouring books. That's what he does. And brilliant man. And they find out, you know, this one person said, you should pick on someone your own size. If you're that strong, you want to fight, try boxing. And he did. And he was good at it. And they entered him in amateur tournaments. And he had a record of something like 16 and 4, 20 and 4. But this was 1966-67. And Doc Brodus said, you know, you should enter the Olympics. It would be a great springboard. And it's interesting what happened in the 70s because you have three straight Olympic champions. Ali, the light heavyweight gold medalist from the Rome Olympics in the 60s. Then you have the sixty, the 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 uh, sixty-four Olympics in Tokyo with Joe Frazier, the heavyweight gold medalist, and then the Mexican Olympics in '68 with the immortal uh, George Foreman. And uh, as I mentioned uh, recently, to watch, it's I don't mean to be demeaning when I say you have to laugh, but Foreman's power was so overwhelmingly strong that he hit these guys in the Olympics. These were not amateur fighters from Iron Curtain countries, Russian-controlled countries, Soviet countries. These guys were in their 30s, mid, early to middle 30s. These were guys with 15, 20 years experience who've been trained well as fighters, and they were using their science, their technique, and Foreman just walked in, and first two, three punches, whack, 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 you know, breaks the guy's nose, knocks out 15 teeth, you know, hits the guy in the eye, fractures his orbital bone. These guys are thinking, what, what, this doesn't happen. We were Soviet bloc fighters. We always win. And blood's pouring out. And he won a decision in the first fight. And the other guy, you see, just 
annihilated. The last one was uh, Johannes Zapoulos, and and uh, he just bludgeoned him in the second round, and the referee uh, stopped the fight, and Zapoulos was staggering the way Trevor Burbick was after the last knockdown for Mike Tyson. He was just, he didn't know where he was. He was heavily concussed. So Foreman takes out the red flag or the American flag and waves it because he wants people to know I'm me. I'm George Foreman. I'm from the United States. And he got booed for that. And, you know, Foreman suffered his own, as all African-Americans do, even today suffered tremendous uh, racism, but he chose to overcome it. It's not that it didn't affect him, but other athletes there, you know, uh, Edwards and Carlos raised a black fist power salute, which was the right thing to do to highlight the inequality of civil rights in the United States. And Foreman got grief for that, but he ignored it. He went on, turned pro. His first biggest win was over, he won all his big fights, but his first big win was over, was over uh, George Chevallo. And Chevallo uh, said getting hit by Foreman as opposed to Frazier. Foreman, Frazier is like getting hit by a mid-sized car at 75 miles an hour. Foreman is like a Mack truck at 50. He said, Foreman hit me in the chin, the hair of my toe, big toe hurt. So Foreman was annihilating people all the way up. And then he gets to fight Joe Frazier in Kingston, Jamaica. And uh, I, I've said this before, uh, it was pay-per-view. And I'm sleeping in my bed in my apartment. My father wakes me up, wake up, wake up. Go, what, what, what's going on? The fight's on. What fight? Foreman Frazier. It's not on, it's pay-per-view. You know, you got to go, oh, close circuit. Close circuit. So I go and deliver him. Someone at a TV station here in Toronto, I made a mistake and was watching it there and flipped a button and the whole country saw it for free. And I'm watching it and I just couldn't believe it. And he knocked him down six times. Uh, last knockdown, he lifted Frazier up in the air. It's like watching a fire hydrant get pulled from the pavement. Frazier went up in the air two, three feet, landed. And then finally, Arthur McCanny stops the fight. Frazier's heavily concussed. Foreman defends the title against... Um, Joe King Roman, which was a blowout first couple of rounds. And then he fights Kenny Norton. And Norton was thought to have a good chance. Norton's the same size. He's got a Hercules-like body. He's a very awkward fight fighter. He fights in a crab defense. And Eddie Futch trained him. And Norton's very strong. And don't forget, he beat Nally. He'd broken his jaw. Lost his second fight to rematch. But against Foreman, people, everyone thought Norton had a good chance. And Norton's strategy was to use Foreman's momentum against him. Foreman's just going to come right out and try to kill me like he does everyone else. So I'm going to keep moving back, keep moving back, shoot my jab in his face. My jab will blind him. Then I'll come over with a right hand and hurt him. And as he does, he shoots the jab a couple of times, hits Foreman. Foreman keeps coming forward. Foreman, who may have had the best jab of all time in boxing history, hits him with a jab. And Norton's eyes roll, hits him with another jab, and then comes over with a crushing right hand and down goes Norton. He gets up, but he never recovers from the first knockdown. And Foreman's pounding him, and Norton goes down again, makes the round, comes out the next round, goes down, gets up, and then Foreman, you know, hits him two, three, four times in a final left hook, and Norton's out. I mean, he's on the ground. He staggers up the ropes at the count of nine, and then his corner just throws the talent, and they stop it because Foreman would have killed him if the fight went on, literally. And so Ali's watching this at home with his friend Howard Bingham. And, you know, he just, he said, well, you know, wow, what are you going to do? I mean, uh, Bingham was watching it. Excuse me. Ali was at the fight. Uh, 
what I meant was the first Frazier fight when he watched Frazier lose to Foreman and Howard Bingham, the photographer, Ali's best friend, said the only thing Frazier is the champion now of is falling down. So Ali's there at ringside yelling, come on, Ken, come on, beat him, do this. And Norton couldn't do it. And so after Colonel Bob Sheraton said to him, how does that happen? How does Norton go the distance with you in two fights, gives you two tough fights, and Norton takes him out, in two, or Foreman takes him out in two rounds, and it's easy. And Ali was smart. He said, listen, I'm not a big puncher. I'm not a strong guy. Although Ali had almost 40 knockouts in like 56 fights, so or 61 fights. So Ali could punch, but it was an accumulation of punches, whereas Foreman, it was just one shot that would take you out. So he said to him, you know, I fought guys like, like George Chevallo, Cleveland Williams, you know, Ernie Terrell, Liston, that were much stronger than me, but I beat them on science. I outfought them. I was able to move and use my speed, my footwork, ring technique. And that's how I beat Foreman, because Foreman just comes out like the mummy and just whomp, punch, throws punches around. And he said, Foreman's never had to go more than two or three rounds. I want to see what happens if he has to go to distance, because I believe his parachute won't open. He said, Foreman's mentality is, I'll kill him right now. And if he can't, what's he going to do? And we don't know what he's going to do because he's never been put in that situation. So Ali, you know, is ready to fight Foreman. And the fight's going to be October, I think, 24th or September 24th, 25th in Zaire, which was the Congo uh, Democratic, in Zaire, Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it was taken over by the dictator uh, Mobutu. And Mobutu, what he did was, uh, Dermot Mailer told me on the set of Cinderella Man that when you were there at the stadium on the day of the fight, the there was you could see the green grass, but there was blood. Like it was all this red liquid. He said it was blood. He said what Mobutu did was he, there were jail cells under the stadium and he'd taken thousands of criminals and he didn't want when the North American press was there for press members or tourists to be robbed you know, pickpocketed or stabbed. So he just murdered all the criminals. He just took all these people who had criminal records, thousands of them, and just killed them. That was Mobutu. And the fight's supposed to be September. And during the fight, one of Foreman's, um, I think his boss man Jones, one of his sparring partners, uh, caught Foreman in the eyelid with an elbow and opened up like a three or four inch cut. And he had to get stitched. It wasn't that big a cut, wasn't that deep, but it was still a cut. And Ali got depressed. But, you know, Ali, he only got depressed for a couple of days. And then he thought, you know, no, this is good. This gives me an extra four or five weeks. And while Foreman's resting, so its cut isn't, uh, doesn't get reopened, I'll be out running. And Ali looked at it as sort of a marathon. You know, I'm running a marathon against him. Oh, he sprained his ankle. He's got to sit down for a bit. I'm going to keep running. I'm not going to stop and let him catch up. So Ali kept training and kept training. The people in Zaire loved him. He, he, he would meet with the people. He would train. He would jog with them. And they started to yell all along the way, Ali Bumaye, which meant Ali kill him in the sporting sense, not really literally kill him. It's been a lot of myths. George Foreman uh, wasn't as disliked there as people said he was. Um, he had a German Shepherd dog there, and they said, well, that alienated the Zyrian people because they used to be uh, a colonial state of, of a uh, Dutch colonial state, and the Dutch used German Shepherds to keep them at bay, but it, which was true, but they didn't dislike George or his dog. That simply isn't true. That's just all hyperbole that was made up. Um, 
George, you know, was not, it was basically, it wasn't that he was unfriendly. He was the champ and he realized a lot goes with this. This is my time in my life to make my mark in my life and make my money. I have to focus. So even with the cut, he still has to do his running. He still has to do jogging. He still has, he, he, he still has to, to get up every day and do his calisthenics. He wanted to leave Zaire until the fight and then go, that's what was said, and go to Paris or go to some other country, a Western country, where he could get normal food and not worry about the water. But he didn't do that. They wouldn't let him out of the country. And that really upset him. So I don't know if that's true or not, because, you know, they both got there a good month and a half, a couple months before the fight, so they could acclimatize to the Zairean climate. And why would you want to leave at, at that point? Foreman definitely was not comfortable in his surroundings. Uh, he was more familiar at home in Houston, Texas, but it didn't mean he wanted to leave or that he was afraid of Ali. That's all BS. Foreman wasn't afraid of anyone. Still isn't. And Foreman was a very good fighter. So Ali's training and training. And, you know, back then, a lot of training camps, you had spies in the other camp. And and people knew who they were. You had a sparring partners who were changing camps all the time. And some sparring partners went to Ali and said, you know, you better watch out for George. He's got a, a, an anywhere punch. And the anywhere punch is he lands it, he throws it, it lands anywhere. And wherever it lands, it does damage. And Ali just was watching film of him. And Ali's people kept telling him how bad Foreman was, how amateurish he was. And Ali just thought, you know, the guy comes in, he throws winging wide punches out the door. Anyone who does that to me can't win. It's not possible. I'm throwing straight punches. You can't telegraph your punches against Muhammad Ali and expect to beat me. It just isn't in the ramble possibility. And so before the fight, he spoke with George Chivato, who fought Foreman. And Chivato uh, was stopped in three rounds. He was still up against the ropes. He was still punching back, but the referee stopped it. And he asked Shivalo, what do you think? And he said, well, I'll tell you something, Muhammad, because George Shivalo and Muhammad were very close, very, very close. And, and, uh, and George still misses him terribly to this day. He said, you know, George comes out, George Foreman comes out and tries to kill you every second of every round. And I'm there on the ropes and I'm catching a lot of the shots. Some are getting through. But I'm thinking if the fight had gone three, four, five more rounds, he's not going to have much left. If you can do that, if you can withstand that and get him to expend his energy, you can take him in the later rounds. And Ali would do this in training camp. Ali never believed in beating up on sparring partners. Some guys like Dempsey, you know, Foreman would destroy the sparring partners. But Ali's training camps were very controlled. So Angelo Dundee would say, this is what we're going to do today, Muhammad. We're going to work on you slipping a jab, moving to your right, and then throwing a straight right over the other guy's low left jab. And and they would do that. And it, it wasn't just getting in the ring and trying to beat the hell out of each other. So they would do that. And then Ali would, you know, later on in the sessions, would lie against the ropes and like this and, and practice punching shots, you know, to conserve energy. Ali later told his doctor, Freddy Pacheco, he thought it was toughening up his body organs. But Pacheco said, it doesn't work that way. You're thinking of a guitar player who gets calluses on his fingers and then can play the guitar without pain. He said, you can't get calluses on your kidneys or liver or organs or other or lungs. You just get damage. So it's better you don't do that. But Ali wasn't going to listen. And, you know, Ali had a storied career. He'd come from the Olympics. Uh, he beat Liston. He was a seven to one underdog. You know, a hundred sports writers are interviewed on TV. You can get the tape on YouTube. And uh, 
98 of the 100, you know, listing the first time he hits him, listing a one round. Uh, Ali, this young kid, Cassius Clay, has talent. I give him two rounds, listing will knock him out. Only two guys, you know, one British guy, one guy from New York. I think Herb Cupsonet said that, you know, uh, Liston's fought three rounds in the last three years, one round each fight. He hasn't trained for this fight. The longer Cassius Clay makes it go, the more Liston will tire. And that's exactly what happened. And, and of course, uh, Clay ends up, uh, Liston quits. Clay wins the title, changes his name to Muhammad Ali, and then beats him in the rematch. And then keeps fighting, won't go to the Vietnam War. You know, none of them ever called me the N-word. None of them prevented me from drinking from a white water fountain. No reason for me to go there. 99% of all the troops, 90% of the troops on the frontline troops who are cannon fodder are African-Americans. And if you're going to draft me, how come you're not drafting Tom Seaver or Pete Rose or any of these other guys, but you drafted me? And they drafted Muhammad because Muhammad was the head of the civil rights movement at that time, the de facto head of that movement and also of the youth movement. And he was this charismatic young figure that had all people, regardless of race, creed, or color, believing that, you know, he was right. And he was right. There's no reason to go to war. We don't have to kill these people. And the war is based on the obsolete domino theory that if one Asian country goes um, communist, they all will. And of course, the most ironic thing, if you're going to take anything away from this uh, podcast is after the Second World War, Ho Chi Minh of North Vietnam goes to the United States State Department and says, I want to be in the American sphere of influence. But people didn't know who he was. So some idiot says to his boss, there's a Chinese waiter, introduces him and said, we're controlled by the French. Get us out of the French. We'll be an ally of the United States. And the United States said, we couldn't care less. Get lost. So then he goes over to Russia. The United States had a chance to take Vietnam and bring it into his own sphere of influence. There never would have been the war had that happened. So Ali doesn't want to get involved in that. And so all these boxing commissions who who New York State Boxing Commission and sanctioning bodies, WBA, WBC, who, who employ convicted pedophiles, convicted murderers, convicted rapists. They all judge Ali, who's never even got a speeding ticket, doesn't smoke or drink, who, a God-fearing man, and they take his title away. But you can only take the title away in a ring. And there was that famous thing in, in Esquire magazine where they have the 30 people, Norman Mailer, the great actor, James Earl Jones, George Plimpton, all these famous people pointing to the camera and saying, if you don't believe Muhammad Ali is the heavyweight champion in the world, then get in the ring with him. So Ali fights it through the courts. He wins, gets a license back to fight in Atlanta. He goes and he beats Jerry Corey. Then he then he beats uh, Oscar Bonavina, who other people couldn't stop. And he beats him in 15 rounds. And then he fights Frazier and he loses. And then he has more fights and he's doing well. And um, I'm, hey, great to see you, Scrapbook too, And uh, I'm doing fine. I hope you're doing well. Uh, and I hope you comment. I hope you're commenting on these things. Please comment. And so what happens is Ali uh, is doing well. He has some setbacks, right? He, he loses to Kenny Norton, breaks his job, but then he comes back. And he, he keeps winning, beats Norton a second time, sets him up for a rematch. Frazier had lost to Foreman, and now they're going to fight in Zaire. And... The way the fight came off was very interesting because Don King wanted to do the fight. And Don King, who, who was a bombster from the Cleveland Mafia, uh, he had the Cleveland mob behind him. And in fact, if you watch it, watch the fight with, with um, uh, Ernie Terrell, 
and Ali on YouTube. And then there's a fight earlier. I think it's the Cleveland Williams fight where after the fight, you see, you see, um, it's a black and white film and there's Ali and beside him is the young George Chevallo who's doing color commentating. And then behind them is Joe is Don King, but his hair wasn't up then. And King had gone to jail twice for murder. And how did he get out of it? The mob, the mob got him out. And so King has said to Foreman and, and Ali, I'll, I'll, I'll get you 5 million each. He didn't have 5 million each. He didn't have 5 million to give them. So he signed a promissory note with both fighters. They got their, them to sign it. And then he went, he looked around for, to get the money. And he went to Mobutu, who's a corrupt dictator who's, who raided his country's coffers and stole money from everyone, murdered hundreds of thousands of people. And he said, I'll put the fight on to show African pride. It bankrupted the country which was pretty well bankrupt to begin with. And uh, people thought this was crazy. You know, people would say to George Foreman, listen, you can beat Ali, but he's done so much for us and so much for black people and all people. Don't kill him. Just beat him. And I'm Foreman, okay, I'm not going to kill him. I'll, I'll just knock him out. I won't kill him. And they had this press conference in New York. And it was an interesting press conference because and everyone's talking. So Angela Dundee's there in the middle. He can't hear. And George Foreman said something to him. And Foreman said something to him like, hey, how you doing? Or, or what's, what's going on? And, 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 but Angela didn't hear it. So he says to Gene Kilroy, Mohammed's manager, what did he say? He said, you're a dumb dago. And then and, and, and Angela turns to Foreman, you big, ignorant son of a bitch, I'm not afraid of you. And he's screaming at him. And George was saying, Angela, what's, what's your problem? Why did you call me about me? I didn't. I just said, how you doing, Ange? And of course, it was a joke played on him by Jim Kilroy. And Angela thought, oh man, I could have just got myself killed. What did I get into? But during this, during this press conference, people are all looking and the sports writers are worried. And Ali said, I know what you're all thinking. You're all looking at me thinking George Foreman's going to kill me. You're thinking this is the end of Muhammad Ali. But he said, you guys don't understand something. There's a, there, there's a fatal flaw in your logic. He said, black people are not afraid of black people the way white people are afraid of black people. He said, to you white people, George Foreman's some big, bad, ugly monster that walks through the forest, killing dragons and knocking down trees with a single punch. He said, to a black guy like me, he's just another guy from the ghetto. He said, I'm physically as big as him. I have the same weight, you know, reach and everything. There's no reason I should be afraid of him, except the former was a lot younger. And so while they're having a press conference, Angelo piped up and Muhammad's got the experience. Muhammad's already fought Liston. And Don King made the mistake of looking at him and saying, shut up, Angelo. And Muhammad was infuriated and looked at him and said, don't you ever say that. Don't you ever talk to Angelo Dundee that way. You're not running things here. You think you're running things here. You're no one. I'm running things. I'm Muhammad Ali. World doesn't care about you. They only care about me. I'm the one running the whole production. Don't you ever talk to Angelo that way. And this was in front of everyone. And it was one of the few times Don King was chastised in public. And so they make the fight and they go into training. And during training, you know, Muhammad's talking to all these people that knew Foreman and had sparred with Foreman and they're all saying Foreman does this and Foreman does that and he knows what he's doing and Foreman's camp is just saying, listen, Muhammad's old, he, he's, he's, he's 32, he doesn't have it anymore, we'll just trap him on the ropes and beat the hell out of him. 
And in fact, before the night of the fight, they all prayed in Foreman's dressing room for about half an hour, not for victory, that they wouldn't take the life of Muhammad Ali. They didn't want, we want to win, but we don't, please God, don't let Muhammad Ali end up in critical condition or die, because that would be a monumental tragedy. So they're getting ready and they're in the dressing rooms and, you know, Muhammad, Muhammad has his hands taped and I'm watching, I'm there at Maple Leaf Gardens with my dad and my dad all the way there going, saying, well, I, I pray for Muhammad and keeps, we always had this argument, Joe Lewis was the greatest of all time. And I said, Muhammad's the greatest of all time. And we may have switched because I still think now my father, after the fight, said, you're right, Ali's the greatest of all time. And then now at my age, I think maybe Joe Lewis really was the greatest of all time. Hard to find anyone better because no one in the history of boxing could punch like Joe Lewis or put punches together. So Ali is in the dressing room and he's looking at his cornerman and Bandini and all of them. And they're all, his whole entourage, they're all, you know, sad looks in their face. He goes, hey, what's wrong with everyone? You look like you're going to a funeral. Don't you know this is just another day in the magical life of Muhammad Ali? God would not have put us here if he didn't think we would win. I wouldn't be fighting this man if I didn't think I could beat him. I'm not going to sign up to fight a Sherman tank because I can't beat a Sherman tank. But this man is mortal. I can beat him. Any man that punches around cannot beat me. I can't beat him on strength, but I can beat him on science and technique, and I will do that. And so they walk out in the 20th of May Stadium and Muhammad comes out and he gets in the ring and the audience, 60,000 people, you know, Ali, Bumae. And Ali's waving his hand, waving them on. Come on, keep saying it, keep saying it. And Foreman kept him waiting for 30 minutes, 35 minutes. And Dundee said, don't worry about that. He goes, I don't care. I, I, I'm, this is my audience now. This is my ring. And Ali's getting used to the ring. He's getting It's a lumpy ring. It's a soft canvas, slow canvas. So he's getting used to it. He's finding out the different parts of the ring, where he can stand, where he shouldn't stand. And Foreman comes running out in a burst. And he gets into the ring. And they get to the center of the ring. And Foreman gives him that mean look. And the sweat's coming off from his brow. And Ali says, now I got you, sucker, because you followed me all through high school. All through high school, you watched me. And you envied me. And you admired me. And now you got to fight me. And Foreman told me years later that he almost laughed. It was the only time he almost broke that because he thought he, he wanted to say to Ali, which he did after he said, Muhammad, I never went to high school. What are you talking about? I was too busy being a thug. When did I go to high school? So the referee, Zach Clayton, gives him the instructions. And before the fight, Ali had called um, Tyson's trainer, Customato. And, you know, this is 74. So at this point, Tyson's eight years old. So he called Customato and he said, what would you do? And he said, well, you know, Foreman beats most guys before they get in the ring out of fear. But his defense is not great. He, he doesn't have to have a good defense because he has really no expectation of someone trying to hit him back. So he said to Muhammad, I'd come right out and hit him with a straight right hand. That's an important fact in this fight because a straight right hand you know, like that, you throw across your body. It's a sucker punch because you, you're telegraphing it from this far away and then you throw it. And you're saying to the other guy, I have such lack of respect for your boxing abilities that I can I can telegraph this punch and still land it because I know you don't have the ability or the intelligence to block it. And that's what Ali did. And that was a hard shot and Foreman was stunned. And Ali landed a couple more and then he moved back 
and he was dancing all around the ring and then he would stop and land some more in form and Allie was much quicker than former was but then former would trap him on the ropes and let his hands go and hit Allie in the flanks Allie's flanks were terribly red pound him on the arms and those punches hurt Allie blocked most of the headshots he caught a couple and after the first round you know when the when the first round ended you know Allie went to his corner and the thing is, you know, Angelo Dundee had a rule. Only one guy talks to the fighter because the fighter can't pick up that many voices because, you know, he's sitting there staring at Foreman. Foreman's staring at him. Foreman's got Archie Moore and Dick Sadler talking to him. He can't really take it all in. And Muhammad's looking at this monster that he's thinking to himself, you know, people lied to me. They, they weren't, you know, they didn't know. They weren't telling the truth. Foreman's so much better than everyone said he was. He's just not a walk a walk-in slugger, a thug in the ring. He knows how to cut the ring off. He's very smart in the ring. And he said, I'm taking eight steps to every two he takes. I can't do that because in six rounds, my legs are gone. He could just sneeze on me and I'll be out cold. So I got to make him expend his energy. What, that's what I have to do. And he did what he did in training camp. He went to the ropes, covered up, leaned back, and let Foreman punch himself out. And Foreman kept hitting him. And you can hear Angelo in the second, third, fourth round, Ali, get off the ropes. And you knew what, what Angelo was worried because he always called him the big guy. When he called him Ali, he was really worried. And get off the ropes, Ali, get off the ropes. And finally, after the second and third round, Ali comes to the corner and said, shut up. I know what I'm doing. You know, I, I, I can't I can't dance. You know, it's too hot, too humid. He's too good at cutting the ring off. I got to make him waste his energy. And the best way to do that is to let him punch himself out. I'm catching all those shots. And he did. But the shots hurt. He pounded Muhammad's arms and his hips and his shoulders. Muhammad's arms hurt, but he took them. And there was a time, third, fourth round, you'll see, or fifth round, where Foreman's throwing shots and Muhammad's booming his head. He ducks. And one time he ducks. And as he comes up, Foreman hits him with the left hand, which usually would have taken anyone out. But Foreman, even at this point in the fourth or fifth round, was so tired, he didn't have his steam on it. And so while this is going on, Muhammad's grabbing George and clinching him and then leaning on his neck and and pushing it down and that takes a lot out of a fighter and it, it and also hurts his mobility and foreman's got to support muhammad's whole weight referee keeps breaking it up saying muhammad don't lean on his neck but he still does it so this is continuing to go on and when he clinches him he says george this is the fourth round 11 more to go 33 more minutes you understand that 10 one-minute intermissions, 43, 45, 50 minutes before it's over. You understand that? And this heat, and you're punching like a little girl. My daughter, my daughter punches better than you. That's all you got? You're supposed to be this big puncher. And Foreman leans back, hits him with a vicious left hook to the liver, which hurt. And Ali said, that's it? That's the left hook that's supposed to scare me and other heavyweights? They lied to me about you, George. You can't punch. You punch like a sissy. And Foreman stopped throwing the punch, which he shouldn't have done. And and he just kept punching himself out. And the interesting thing, when you speak to Foreman after years later, he said, looking back in retrospect, what he should have done was when Ali went to the ropes, he should have just stood his ground in the center ring and said, listen, I'm the champ. I got the belt around my waist. You want it, you attack me. If you're not going to attack me, then I'll just stand here, you know? Don't call it a no decision. You don't win. You got to come after me. And in a way, Ali was coming after him. He just wasn't doing a direct frontal assault because that was that would have been suicidal. He had to find a way to beat Foreman another way. And Foreman, 
you know, his corner kept saying, you're doing well, you're doing well, because their pre-fight strategy was get him on the ropes and pound him. And you can't say Dick Sadler, Archie Moore, Moore, who was the greatest knockout artist in the history of boxing and the greatest light heavyweight champion of all time, one of the greatest fighters ever to have lived. You can't say his information or his advice to George was wrong because there was a variable, which was Ali. No one expected Ali to take that kind of abuse and still survive because no other fighter in George's life had ever done that. No one could take that kind of punishment from a guy like George and survive. And I, even Ali had his limits. And he just kept pounding him and pounding him. And Ali kept soaking it up. And, you know, it's 110, 115 degrees, tremendous humidity. Foreman is pouring off sweat. And he's <gasps> he's breathing hard. And they said Foreman wasn't in shape. Foreman was in shape. But he punched himself out. And it was like the Hearns fight with uh, with Hagler, where Hearns said after the fight, I fought 15 rounds in, in nine minutes. You know, I, I expended too much energy. And that's what Foreman was doing. He was so intent to kill Ali that he thought, you know, that he was going to do that. And uh, Richard Hutchison says, Crawford versus uh, Avancen, Keith, uh, Keith versus Span Lopez, Harlem, Harlem versus... Yes, these are all good fights coming up. You're right. Great fights coming up. Um, so Ali, his strategy is working. He's becoming... Um, thank you, Scrapbook. Uh, he's becoming very, very tired. And Foreman's not altering his strategy. But at that point, you can't. You're committed to it. And why would Foreman alter his strategy? Everyone's fallen before him. You know, it, 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 it makes no sense. You could look at any sport. You know, Ted Williams was a great belt-high fastball hitter. 521 career home runs. Why would he change that after, you know, after hitting that many home runs? It would make no sense. So why would Foreman change his style? That was Foreman's style. It wasn't until Foreman took 10 years off, and not because he found religion, but because he, he had signed a gunpoint uh, personal services contract to Don King. And when it expired, then he came back because he could keep the money he made. And that he was so much smarter when he came back. He had all this wisdom. And it took him 20 years to get over losing to Ali. And finally, after 20 years, he wakes up in bed and says, I lost to him. It's all right. No, it's not the end of the world. And fifth round, sixth round, seventh round, you know, Foreman's punching himself out. Now he's really hitting him back. A couple of times it looks like Foreman's going to go down. There was one time earlier in the fight where Foreman has him trapped in the far corner and the bell rings and they're staring at each other. Ali steps to a side, pushes Foreman in the back. And Foreman goes face first into the turnbuckle. And as I said, there was a point where Foreman misses a punch and he always goes out of the ring. And so after the seventh round, he said to Angelo Dundee, mom says, I think he's done. I think he's finished. He doesn't have anything left. And Angelo grabs his face and says, look at me now. Then get him out. Don't play with this sucker. Get him out now. Let's go home. Take him out now. And Muhammad gets up the next round. And and Richard Hutton said, I'm not sure how you say Avan Essien. Um, I will find out for you. Um, anyways. So that's not pertinent to what we're talking about now, though. But thank you. That's That will be a great fight. And he's not a bum. He's a good fighter, and he will give Crawford a very good fight. But I want to see Tank Garcia. I want to see Tank, excuse me, versus Garcia. So here's the thing. So it goes out for the eighth round, and Foreman comes out, and Foreman keeps throwing these wide punches. And Ali did the move that he did when he knocked Liston out the first time and that he did when he dropped Carl Mildenberger. This was the typical Ali move. Slip, slide, 
bang. It was designed by Angelo Dundee. Foreman's throwing these punches. Foreman throws a jab. Ali slips to his right, creates the angle. Overhand right, right on Foreman's side of his head. Foreman's wobbled. Ali hits him a left, right, left, right, left. And Foreman wobbles in the air for a second. Ali was going to hit him again. And he had, Foreman said he didn't want to ruin the aesthetic of the moment, so Ali held back. Ali didn't want to ruin the aesthetic of the moment. I just think, you know, Foreman was moving back and forth as he was wobbling. Ali didn't want to do it again. Just didn't think he needed to. And Foreman went down. And I'm watching this. And I'm screaming. I'm, I'm up in my chair. My father's going, sit down, son. And I'm like, I can't believe it. He did it. He did it. He did it. He said he would do it. All, all last two, three months at high school, I kept saying to people, he's going to knock him out. He's going to knock him out in the eighth round. You're crazy, Lou. You're an idiot. There's no way he can beat Foreman. I said, you don't understand. Hadley's not a liar. If Ali didn't think he could beat him, he wouldn't fight him. Hadley's already said, I can't beat a Sherman tank. I can't fight 35 Marines at one time. But I can beat George Foreman. And, and Ali wouldn't fight him if he didn't think he could beat him. And so Foreman goes down, and Zach Clayton, uh, who was the referee for the patterson Chevalier fight, he'd been around since the 50s, starts counting. One, two, three. And Foreman's lying on his back looking at his corner. That's what you're told to do. Look at your corner. Your corner tells you when to get up. But he said his corner was so frantic that this wasn't expected. This wasn't supposed to happen. And so it was almost like a Salvador Dali painting of, you know, stopwatches melting. I mean, it, it seems so out of the real. It seems surreal. And Foreman's down, and the referee's counting. And I thought Foreman had made it up, but Zach Clayton said 10. And it was over. And Ali had won. And I couldn't believe it. And the whole 60,000-seat arenas exploded. Now, I was in Maple Leaf Gardens that night, watching on closed circuit with my father. And there was 18,000 people. And there was a brief moment of silence. Brief moment. And then everyone went nuts. And everyone was crying. I love you, Ali. And thank you, God. I love you, Ali. And and everyone in, the, in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto, a world away from Zaire, was going, Ali, boom, I, Ali, boom, I. And I was so, you know, I, I it, it happened so quickly. I said, what happened? What happened? And my father said, he won. He did it, son. He did what you said he was going to do. He did what he promised you. He came back. He won the title. He had climbed the mountain. He had done what everyone said he could not do. He had destroyed. He'd come back and he had beaten this big, bad, ugly monster, you know, 10 years to the day after he destroyed uh, uh, Sonny Liston. He'd come back, climbed the, climbed the tallest, highest, most impenetrable of mountains and made the gods weep. He took his crown back that belonged to him and became the second man ever only to win the heavyweight title two times and on in the dressing room he, he walks back to the dressing room he hangs a moon you know pulls his trunks down he, but when he's sitting there he's talking and david frost is interviewing him and he says i told you all you people that write into ring magazine and all you people that write into boxing illustrated crawl crawl on your ground crawl on the ground crawl on your knees i'm the greatest of all time i'm the greatest thing that ever lived i told you i'd never be beat no one could ever beat me you'll never beat me again maybe when i'm 50 you'll get me but don't count on it. And that was Muhammad. Millions of people watching all over the world. The world united as one, as one happy moment where everyone united as the same person at one time and everyone singularly happy. And that moment was repeated 20 years later when George Foreman knocked up Michael Moore because Foreman somehow came back, beat the odds, won the title again, 
undisputed champion, and the whole world fell in love with Foreman. They fell in love with him before that. Ali and Foreman ended up being friends, and and uh, Ali never personally disliked anyone he fought. Perhaps maybe Ernie Terrell for for refusing to call him Muhammad Ali, but it was a historic night. No one thought it was at all in any way possible. I think it was it was for for Muhammad. He said it was the most satisfying of all his victories. He said the best for the fans was the third Frazier fight. But the one over Foreman, you know, the next day he's standing at the river and he's holding this cane that Mobutu had given him. And all these great sports writers, Norman Mailer were there, George Plimpton, Jerry Eisenberg, all of them. And he looked at them and he said, you'll never know. If you live for a thousand years, you'll never know what this moment means to me. After everything he'd gone through, having his title stolen, being a pariah in his own country, being called the worst names, all the racism he had to go through, you know, being broke, not being allowed to work, not being allowed to leave the United States, having the government take his passport because he wouldn't go to Vietnam, to come back through all of this and win the undisputed world heavyweight title in convincing fashion by knockout. They couldn't take it away from them, and they never will. And a thousand years from now, we'll still be talking about Muhammad Ali the single greatest athlete ever in the history to walk the face of this earth. My name's Lou Eisen. This has been Ring Talk. I hope you've enjoyed it. And you guys uh, are great. Thank you so much for, for texting in. I see all your, um, all your, all your great texts. Oh, by the way, uh, Eddie Barrington is kind enough to say for the pronounced man's name is Ivanisian. Okay, Ivanisian. Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that. That's very kind of you. So Crawford's fighting Evanesian. That will be a great fight. Evanesian could fight, but there's a lot of great fights coming up. Please support boxing. Um, there's so many wonderful fights coming up. It's the greatest of all sports. You know why? Not because it gives a man a chance to be as good as his opponent, because it gives him a chance to be better. And no one proved that more than Muhammad Ali. I'm Lou Eisen. This is Ring Talk. Thank you for watching. We will see you again next week. Take care. Bye-bye.